And go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. All right, well, you may have missed it, but this last week, um, Jeremy posted on his Facebook a survey of the most popular Thanksgiving foods. And my wife, Brittany, she was pretty entranced with this post, and um, she took, uh, she was slighted by some of the things that were on there. There were normal foods that you would expect at Thanksgiving, uh, a turkey, right, maybe ham, stuffing, mashed potatoes, pumpkin pie. And then there were other things that you might not think of at Thanksgiving time, uh, and maybe you do. I, I don't know what you guys are at Thanksgiving, but there were foods such as squash and cornbread and macaroni and cheese, uh, Brussels sprouts, and once again, Brittany, um, she had some strong opinions about whether or not those should be eaten at Thanksgiving. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at uh, the Corinthians. And they disagreed with how these spiritual gifts should be used. Um, they had some misunderstandings about these spiritual gifts, and they misused these spiritual gifts. Um, they overemphasized some, they disregarded others, um, and they definitely needed to be corrected on their understanding of spiritual gifts and their, their use of these spiritual gifts. And so before we really get into to things too far, I want to... Uh, set for you guys a, a roadmap of where I want to go with this sermon and where we're going to be at. So first of all, I want to look at the, the larger context of where we're at here in 1 Corinthians 13, the larger context of spiritual gifts. And then we're going to take a, a look at a unique interpretive issue that we find in this particular set of verses, uh, an interpretive issue that have has been understood by different people in different ways. So we'll take a, a peek at that before we actually get into uh, Paul's central principle. 
where we'll look at his exhortation to the Corinthians, an example that he gives to the Corinthians that we can learn from as well, and then an encouragement that he will wrap up with. So as I said, I want to first set the greater context of spiritual gifts. We know of 1 Corinthians 13. It's a a pretty popular chapter in the Bible. It's commonly known and referred to as the love chapter, but we have to realize that this takes place within a three-chapter conversation that Paul is having with the Corinthians on spiritual gifts. This is right smack dab in the middle of uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14, all of which Paul is addressing these spiritual gifts. And so if you have turned with me to 1 Corinthians 13, I want you to turn back briefly and let's look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul launches into this conversation on spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1, Paul starts off by saying, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. So this is where we see, once again, he's jumping into this conversation. He wants them to be aware. He wants to teach them, wants to inform and correct their understanding so that they are more prepared, more aware of these spiritual gifts. Jump on down to verse 7. He says, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So here he tells us a a couple of things. He tells the Corinthians a couple of things that, first of all, everybody has a spiritual gift. Each one has been given a spiritual gift. And the purpose of this spiritual gift is for the common good, for the good of everybody. Continuing on, 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. And so here he kind of steps it up a notch. Back in verse 7, he was talking about how the the gifts that each one has been given is for the common good of each. But now he's saying not only is it for the common good, but it's for the unity of each, to bring everybody together. Uh, Just as uh, hospitals have the purpose and the intention of the common good, they they have your good in in mind, they have your good in mind, my good in mind. Um, They want to make money too, right? But they have supposedly our good in mind. Um, However... It's not a, a unifying desire that they have. But Paul's saying the desire of the Spirit in giving these spiritual gifts is that we would be unified. And we see this all throughout this whole section, this whole discourse on spiritual gifts. Uh, look with me at verse 14, chapter 12. For the body is not one member, but many. Verse 20. But now there are many, not, but now there are many members, but one body. And then 25, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And as we'll look at here in a moment, this was a a pretty big issue that was going on in the midst of the Corinthian church. They struggled with this idea of unity. And so Paul's mentioning it over and over again, that the spiritual gifts are for the purpose of unity. Uh, Jump forward into 1 Corinthians 14. In verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 14, same thought, same idea is being portrayed here. So also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So he's acknowledging here, yes, you're zealous for these spiritual gifts. They were excited about it. Um, Even though they were misunderstanding and misapplying, misusing these spiritual gifts, they were zealous for them. And now he's telling them, once again, as he's been doing throughout this whole discourse, to seek those spiritual gifts for the unity, for the edification, for the building up of the church. 
And then he ends out this section in 1440 by saying, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. And once again, we see that idea, that understanding of a need for correction. They were excited and zealous for these spiritual gifts, but they were misusing <coughs> these spiritual gifts. And so with that greater context in mind, let's jump into our, our text back in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8, which starts off by saying, love never fails. Now this is going to be the, the thesis statement that Paul has throughout this whole section, that love never fails. That's, that's important. That's what he wants to get across more than anything else, that love is eternal. Love never fails. And then we see some, some various readings, depending on what translation you have. In the New American Standard, it says, but if there are gifts of prophecy, if there are tongues, if there is knowledge, um, other translations would read whether there's prophecy, tongues, or knowledge, or um, there are prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. As for prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, where there is prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, and we shouldn't let this trip us up. It can be confusing, um, especially when it's using the word if, um, but the, the structure, the grammatical structure of the, the verse informs us and implies that there are indeed spiritual gifts. And so that's all it's saying. It's not saying there may be, there may not be. It is saying emphatically that there are prophecy, there are tongues, there are knowledge. And then it goes on and it says that they will cease, they will be done away. And there are uh, different understandings about what's going on here and the, the different gifts that are in view, that are in question. But I happen to believe that these three gifts are representative of all of the spiritual gifts, that Paul is using these three in particularly to convey the idea that he's talking about all the spiritual gifts. And he's picking prophecy because he's getting ready to go into a, a big, long discourse on prophecy. Just in a few verses, all of 14 is really talking about prophecy and the importance that Paul is going to place on prophecy. And uh, tongues and knowledge, those were gifts that the Corinthian church, they were taking and they were elevating above other gifts. They were their, their favorite gifts, their pet gifts, right? That they wanted to take and elevate above where they should be elevated. Uh, just like the man who looks forward to Thanksgiving dinner because of the Kraft macaroni and cheese, right? Uh, he's got his perspective messed up and these guys have their perspective messed up. And they think, for some reason, that tongues are more important than other gifts, that knowledge uh, is, is more important. And so Paul points out that prophecy and tongues and knowledge, they will cease. They will be done away with. Um, I have a, a quote here from the Nelson's Bible Commentary. And it says that one day, all the gifts will be needed no longer, but love will continue forever. Paul focuses on three of the 16 gifts to demonstrate the temporary, temporariness of them all. I don't know if that's a word, but uh, he used it to demonstrate that these gifts are, are temporary. And I think that's the, the main thrust of what Paul's trying to communicate to us, that love never fails. Love endures forever. But the, these gifts, they will be done away. They will fade away. And so a few different, couple different things, rather, that I want to point out about these gifts. We see in verse 8 that they are temporary. So, yes, once again, love never fails, but 
where or if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Tongues, they will cease. Knowledge, it will be done away. So these gifts are temporary. And there has been uh, a pretty great deal of discussion about uh, the words that are used here for being done away or for fading away, for uh, ceasing. And so you'll notice that uh, prophecy and knowledge both use uh, a different word. It's even translated differently in the English that uh, they will be done away. And this word is in the, the passive voice, which means that it will be acted upon. It's not doing the acting, but it is being acted upon by something outside of itself. And once again, a lot of people will say, well, that's, that's pretty important. Whereas the word for tongues ceasing or fading away, this is in the middle voice, which means that it's neither doing the, all of the acting or it's not being acted upon, but that it over time will uh, fade out on its own, so to speak. Um, and once again, uh, there's been a, a lot of discussion about how much weight should be given to the, the different words that are, are used here. And just a full disclosure, I'm not a Greek expert. I took one year of Greek a decade ago, um, and I didn't pass it with flying colors. Um, but while perhaps Paul is making a sharp distinction here between when prophecy and knowledge is going to fade away versus when tongues are going to fade away, that is not his, his main point here. Again, his main point is that uh, love is to be distinguished from the gifts. Love doesn't fade away. Love never fails. These gifts, they do fade away. So whether or not there's a dis distinction there, I don't know. But that's not his main point in this passage. We see that um, he is, once again, di differentiating between love and spiritual gifts, saying that these spiritual gifts are temporal. Not only are they temporal, but we'll see in verse 9 that they are also partial. So verse 9 says that we know in part and we prophesy in part. So these spiritual gifts are temporal and they are partial. Uh, Thomas Schreiner says in his commentary that Paul is not suggesting that the prophecies uttered are mixed up with error and thus partially correct and partially incorrect. His point is that neither prophecy nor knowledge is exhaustive. The knowledge believers enjoy is true, but not comprehensive. So that's important. He's not saying we only have partial truth, but he's saying that um, it's not exhaustive, that it's not going to last forever in the same sense that uh, love is going to last forever. These are temporal. And as important as these gifts are, they are bound within time, whereas love is timeless. That's the main takeaway that we should take from uh, him saying that we, we know and we prophesy in part. We also see down in verse 10 that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Once again, it is partial, and it's going to be done away with. And this is where we get into our unique interpretive issue, because what is going to um, cause these gifts to be done away with, remember I told you that they were... Um, they were to be done away with in a passive sense. Something else was to be acting upon them to do that doing away. And that thing that is doing that acting is here called the perfect. Well, Paul doesn't really explain to us what the perfect is. He doesn't describe what he's talking about when he says that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. 
And so there are a few different understandings, a few different interpretations that people have taken over the years. And so we're going to take a, a moment to look at that and see and try to understand more fully what this perfect is talking about. And we have to remember again, this isn't Paul's central point. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, this is peripheral, but I think it helps us to understand what he's talking about here when he's talking about the perfect coming. So there are two major camps that I want to break this down into. The first camp understands this perfect as something that has already taken place, something that is past tense. And then the second camp understands this perfect as something that is yet to come that we're still looking forward to. And so the first um, understanding of this perfect that I want to consider is an understanding that I was taught back when I was going to Bible college. It was um, the, the main view of my school that the perfect is refute referring to the completion of the canon. So when Paul was writing this, they had the Old Testament already all um, sealed up and, and ready for them. It was readily available. But the New Testament was still being written. It would still be a number of years before the New Testament was completed. And so that's the view of, of this first group, that this perfect is referring to the completion of the canon. There are a couple of issues that I have with this understanding. First of all, it assumes that Paul himself would have understood that there was to be a completion of the canon, that what he was writing down, what these other uh, apostles were writing down, would be compiled into a, a book, into the Bible, and it would be available for, for everybody to read. Secondly, it would have to assume not only did Paul have that understanding, but Paul was writing to the Corinthians with that same understanding, that they would have understood what he meant when he said, yeah, when the perfect comes, then these partial, these gifts are going to be done away with, that they would have understood him to say, well, you just wait until you have the full word of God, uh, toda scriptura that is there for you, and you can refer to that, and you won't have to um, have anybody prophesy for you. You won't have to listen to these people speak in tongues. That's going to be done away with when you have the Bible. I don't think that either Paul nor his recipients would have understood that in that way. And then thirdly, I think that this would jeopardize Paul's view of Christ's imminent return, that Christ could come back at any moment um, because he's saying, well, the perfect has to take place first. The, the completion of the canon has to take place first before the, the gifts are, are done, before they are ceased and done away with. And uh, he has, and he teaches that Christ can come back at any moment without anything else taking place beforehand. Um, also, throughout uh, church history, church history attests to uh, the, the miraculous sign gifts, which a lot of people think that this is referring to just the, the miraculous sign gifts, those that are revelatory in nature rather than all of the sign gifts. And church history tells us that these miraculous sign gifts, um, that they ended well before the, the New Testament was readily available to the common man that they ended clear back in the, the first century. And so some people will say, again, that these miraculous sign gifts are tied with the, the completion of the New Testament. But the New Testament um, wasn't compiled into a, a form that was, once again, readily available to everybody until after these sign gifts had already ceased. Uh, second understanding that understands this word perfect to be referring to something that's already taken place in the past is the spiritual maturity of the church. 
And I want to read for you what uh, one commentator says. He says that the specific kind of maturity that Paul wrote about was a doctrinal and relational maturity dealing with the Jew and Gentile elements of the church. And so we know that in the early church, they were trying to struggle and figure out, well, how does the Jew and the Gentile, how do they get together? How do they relate? Who is salvation for? Circumcision, is that necessary? What about obeying the law? It was an issue that they had all throughout the early church. And so there's a group of people that say um, that what the perfect is, is when these two groups of people, the Jew and the Gentile, can come together in spiritual maturity, having an understanding that they are both under Christ. Um, my issue with this understanding is that it's, it's quite vague. Uh, we don't know when that would have happened. Even those who hold to this view don't want to point at a date and say, oh, well, this is when uh, they had that, that understanding of unity in Christ. And those that do, they'll just point back to the, the completion of the canon, so not too dissimilar from that first view. And really, a, a lot of us, um, maybe not us, we, we want to distance ourselves from that, but it could be said that uh, this unity isn't even achieved today, that there's still disunity with this understanding of the, the one man in Christ um, being made up of both Jew and Gentile. Um, so also in, in verse 12, this kind of speaks against both of those views, the completion of the canon, the spiritual maturity of the church. In verse 12, it says that, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So if this perfect has come, and if this is speaking of our understanding today, um, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed because that's not how I feel. I don't feel as if I know fully, as if I am looking face-to-face uh, -face rather than in a mirror. This illustration that he uses of looking into a mirror dimly, this would have been well understood by the Corinthians because in Corinth it was a, a common practice for them to, it was a, a trait that they had there in that city that they would take bronze and they would hammer it out and flatten it out and turn it into a, a mirror and sell these mirrors. I think of these mirrors that you see in city parks, right, where you go in and it's like a, a metal sheet and it's not really a, a real mirror because vandals will go in and they'll break the mirror. Um, and so you have a, a metal sheet where you can see dimly, kind of, kind of get a, an idea of what you're looking back at. Or if you go out and you look in the car, in your car, you can see a a vague reflection, but once again, it's not like looking into a mirror. It's not like looking into somebody's face, but rather like looking at a photograph of somebody. That's what Paul's trying to communicate here, that our understanding now is limited, but one day, it's not going to be like looking into a mirror dimly, but looking face to face. And when he speaks of looking face to face, this was uh, talking about intimate fellowship. It's a metaphor for intimate fellowship that's used all throughout Scripture. So you look up face-to-face, -face and you'll see um, different passages, like when Jacob was wrestling with God. He wrestled with God face-to-face. -face. Or when Moses had his encounter with God on the mountain, he saw God face-to-face. -face. Once again, I hope that um, that's not our understanding now, because I certainly don't feel that way. So um, I definitely lean more towards this being something that is yet future. Uh, another quote here from Thomas Schreiner on this idea that 
this perfect is speaking to the spiritual maturity of the church. He says, this view is unpersuasive since it is scarcely evident that the believers today are more spiritually mature now than the canon, that the canon has been completed than believers were in the New Testament era. So he kind of has that same idea um, that we're not more spiritual than these First Testament people were. So um, he has this understanding, this idea that it is also yet future. So a couple of different understandings of this word perfect that are understanding it in a future sense. One would be that it is referring to Christ's return at the rapture, when he comes back for the church. And for me, the the most compelling aspect of this understanding that it's speaking of the rapture is that um, 2 Thessalonians 2 talks about how the restrainer is going to be taken away. He who restrains the sin on the earth now, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he's no longer going to be here when the church is raptured. And he is the one who gifts the church with these spiritual gifts. So it has some validity to it. Um, Also has some issues, though, because this same, these same kind of spiritual gifts, um, not called spiritual gifts, but these same kind of giftings are seen before the church was brought into existence. In the Old Testament, we still see prophecy, we still see knowledge, um, those kind of things. So that gives a, a little bit of hesitation to this understanding, to this view. And also in the future, after the church is gone, there will still be um, prophecy and some gifts that seem to be similar to the gifts that are spoken about here as being done away or as ceasing upon the, the perfect coming. In Joel chapter 2, speaking of the day of the Lord, when God's wrath is going to be poured out, it speaks about how there will be prophecy and visions and dreams. Also in Revelation chapter 11, we read about two witnesses and how they will come and they will prophesy and they will do miraculous things. And so it seems that even in the future, after the church is raptured, there are still going to be some of these gifts that have not been ceased, that have not been done away with. And so um, while Christ's rapture of the church is, in my understanding, a more viable option than the completion of Scripture or the spiritual maturity of the church, um, it's got its issues as well. Another understanding of this perfect um, is that it's speaking of the second coming when Jesus comes back with his saints. And this is going to take place after the rapture, after the tribulation, uh, like I said, where there's going to be prophecy and, and miraculous signs done. And some believe that passages like uh, Isaiah chapter 12 or Isaiah chapter 32 speak once again of some of these gifts that are going to be done in the millennial kingdom, which would give pause for that understanding. And finally, um, where I think I land, um, we could understand this as speaking of the eternal state. And um, this is where I think um, Paul and the Corinthians would most likely land what they would have in mind when Paul says that when the perfect comes, that which is partial is going to be done away. Do you guys remember in Matthew chapter 5, right in the, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, um, Jesus is speaking to the Jews and he says that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And they, they would have understood, <clears throat> in my opinion, this verse talking about the perfect to be 
um, going back and, and speaking of verses much like that. That's talking about the same word there, that you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we know that in our current state as fallen beings, we are not perfect right now as our, our Heavenly Father is perfect. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. However, in the eternal state, this is speaking of that time in which we will be glorified with Christ, made righteous by the righteousness of Christ, where we will no longer be sinful, but we will be clothed in his righteousness. Um, again, made perfect or complete or mature, not in a sense that makes us equal with God. God alone is omniscient. God alone is um, given the name that is above all names, but he will clothe us in his righteousness. Um, same kind of concept that we see in Romans 8, 29 and 30, right? The, the golden chain of redemption. Talking about those whom he has foreknown, he is also predestined. Those whom he has predestined, he has called. Those whom he has called, he has justified. And those whom he has justified, he has glorified. He has taken us and made us glorified. He has um, completely removed sin from us. Right now, if you are in Christ, you have the privilege of living apart from the penalty of sin, apart from the power of sin. Power, um, sin doesn't have power or dominion over us. We are not slaves to sin, but we are slaves to Christ. However, when we are glorified, we will also be removed from the presence of sin altogether. And once again, in my mind, this is uh, most likely what Paul is speaking of when he's speaking of the perfect. Uh, he spoke of this back in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, look with me in 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 7. And Paul said to the Corinthians, You are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think this is what he has in mind, that we are waiting for that day when we are glorified, when we are made perfect, made right in Christ. Um, once again, at the end, or closer towards the end of 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, verse 42 and 43, Paul says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body, and it is raised an imperishable body. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. This is speaking of the eternal state when, once again, we're not going to have to struggle with the presence of sin, but we're going to be glorified. We're going to be uh, made like him. And in my mind, this seems to fit a lot better with this understanding that we will see not as in a, a mere dimly, but we will see as face to face. When we are glorified, when we are with him, when we are made like he is. Uh, listen to, to this passage talking about the eternal state. I, I love this thought. This should just wake us up a little bit, right? Revelation 21, 3 and 4 says, Behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling of God is among men. This is speaking, again, of the future state. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and they will no longer be, there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things will have passed away. Uh, Christ, who has begun a good work in us, he will see it through to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So, while there are, once again, different understandings of this word and how to interpret it, um, 
we're, we're kind of left with these two camps. Is it something that's past tense or something that's future tense? And um, while if Paul was speaking of these miraculous sign gifts and these have already taken place in the past, which in my understanding is uh, a big motivation for why some people want to say that it's speaking of the completion of Scripture. A lot of people um, in, in our kind of theological camp will hold to that, that it's talking about how the Bible is being completed. Um, I think that a lot of that is done with this idea that we want to have a text that we can go to that says the spiritual gifts have ceased. These miraculous spiritual gifts have ceased. We've kind of turned this passage into a, a referendum on the miraculous sign gifts, when I don't think that we should have done that. I don't think that we need to do that. I think that we have plenty of other uh, passages in Scripture, plenty of other reasons why we can say that these miraculous sign gifts have ceased. And we've spoken on that in sermons past, um, and you can check those out. But I don't believe that that is Paul's main thrust of teaching here, that um, the spiritual sign gifts have ceased. But once again, that Love is forever. Love will endure forever, whereas these sign gifts, which the Corinthians were misusing, are only temporary. And so with, with that understanding, let's take a look at um, Paul's central principle that he is speaking of love and the, the preeminence of love over these miraculous sign gifts. Let's look at his exhortation, then his example and the encouragement that he leaves the Corinthians with. So the exhortation that, that Paul leaves for um, these Corinthians is that um, they need to love beyond um, just engaging in these spiritual sign gifts. And once again, these Corinthians, they've struggled with this idea of love all throughout this book. We've seen it that they are, even back in chapter 1, they are fighting. There is dissension and disagreement and argument amongst themselves. They're talking about who is the wisest, who knows the most. And they're causing division amongst themselves, saying, I am of Paul, I am of Paulus, I am of Cephas, um, not having love and unity with and for one another. Uh, they are seeking wisdom, seeking prestige, judging one another. They're judging Paul. Um, and Paul says, who am I to be judged by you? Um, we see that they are puffed up um, in chapter 5. We see this display of sexual immorality that the Gentiles didn't even know of. It was unique even among the Gentiles, the, the kind of sinful, loveless stuff that they were getting into. Chapter 6, they were taking one another to court because of their lack of love for one another. Uh, they were joining with prostitutes. They were sexually depriving their spouses. They were divorcing their spouses uh, when they definitely should not have been. They were disregarding uh, the spiritual struggles of one another in chapter 8 and chapter 9, not refusing to, to eat meat, but causing their brother or sister to, to stumble and to sin because of their own preferences, a total lack of love. Exalting one, one another, rather than exalting one another, they were exalting themselves in chapter 11, we saw how they were getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were coming together and uh, disregarding their brother and just gorging themselves and indulging in what was meant to be a memorial to the Lord for their own selfish reasons, a total and complete lack of love, misusing their spiritual gifts 
exalting themselves over one another. And Paul here, again, his main thrust, you guys need to embrace love. Love is eternal. Love is going to last forever. These spiritual gifts, these other things that you guys are exalting to a place of importance that um, is unnecessary, they're only temporal. They're going to, to fade away. Love is not puffed up. It's not inflated. It's not narcissistic. It's not something that is self-absorbed. He gives a, a definition. He tells us about the, the fruit and the effects of love in verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. It is kind. It's not jealous. does not brag, not arrogant. It's not unbecoming. And this is all leading up to what he's talking about here in our passage when he says that love never fails. That is the, the thrust of this whole section of Scripture, that they are to lift up love over the spiritual gifts that they have misplaced. And uh, I, I pray that here at Orchard Hills Bible Church, we wouldn't fall into that trap, but that we would be a, a loving people and we, could, we would continue to, to love one another. And that would be our, our highest desire, our highest goal. Scripture talks about how that is to be the, the identifying mark of a Christian, that they will know that we are Christians by our love. We should always be self-evaluating. How can we love better? What can we do to, to stand out as those who are loving rather than falling into the same trap that these Corinthians were where they are exalting something else other than love, some temporal thing up to a place where it ought not to be? Are we engaging in one another's lives? Do we know what's going on in the lives of the other people in our church? Are we hurting when they are hurting? Are we rejoicing when they are rejoicing? Are we having each other over into our houses? Are we engaging with one another throughout the week? These are things that we should be doing to exalt love, a love that never fails, a love that will last forever. We ought to elevate love in our lives, just as Paul is encouraging and exhorting these Corinthians to do in their lives. John says in, in 1 John 4, that the one who does not Love does not know God, for God is love. Once again, this must be the identifying mark of us as, as Christians. We must be set apart by our love. These spiritual gifts, they are provisional. They are partial. They are temporary, whereas love is never lasting, never failing, everlasting um, outside of time. Uh, we don't want to misunderstand this passage as a lot of people have as saying that love is um, it's always going to triumph that love is always going to to overcome because that's not what Paul is trying to communicate here um, uh, many of a parent many a, a marriage uh, have been sucked into this this false idea that well if I just love my child then then things will be okay. I don't want to discipline them. I want to love them, which is, first of all, a, a false understanding of love. But um, it's placing our, our hope in the outcome rather than talking about how this love is eternal. That's not what Paul is communicating here. We see in, um, we looked a couple weeks ago in Romans, Romans chapter 9, 3, where Paul says that his love for his fellow countrymen was so great that he would himself be cut off. He would be accursed if they would be saved. However, they weren't. Um, that doesn't diminish his love, but that's not what 
Paul is communicating here. Jesus himself in Matthew 23, he cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would long that you would be saved. But they had um, a desire in their heart that was contrary to that. And so this love isn't talking about a love that is always going to overcome, but a love that is eternal. Uh, We should nevertheless seek to love as Christ loved us realizing that love is everlasting. Uh, Love should be our priority and our focus, but what Paul is saying here is that love is timeless. Look with me at verse 11, where we see this example that Paul gives of love. Paul says, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child. I used to think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And so we see here that Paul is talking about and making this comparison between these elementary things, which are the the spiritual gifts and how they are for a time only, and um, what is the the better, more mature, the perfect, which is yet to come. And we see that Paul seeks to put these things into perspective to help the Corinthians to understand that these spiritual gifts, once again, there are only partial, temporary, elementary, and there to look forward to what is to come. And he says, when he was a child, he did speak and think and reason like a child. So it is okay for children to do childish things. Um, And making that comparison, that connection here, spiritual gifts are not bad. And we don't want to walk away with that understanding. Spiritual gifts are good. And he's going to, once again, in chapter 14, talk about um, prophecy. And he's going to elevate prophecy. But we should understand that They are only partial. They are only temporary. And they are to be um, not elevated over this idea of love. Just as um, my wife is um, homeschooling our kids, and she's teaching our kids math. Three different kids, three different ages. And so she'll start off with just very basic addition, right? Two plus two is four. Um, Get into subtraction, multiplication. Uh, Eventually, one day, we'll hit algebra and geometry and calculus and trigonometry, um, but that's for a different time. The, the math that they're learning right now, that is good and that is right for them to be learning. The spiritual gifts that we are embracing and practicing as a church, as those who have been gifted by the Spirit, those are good for now, for this time, but they are temporary. Love, however, is eternal, and we need to focus on and emphasize love. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 4 through 16. Paul, again here, later writes, We are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. And one way that we are to do this is by the gifts that he has given us, the gifts of discernment and teaching. Um, But rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Love is to be our our focus. Love is eternal, and that is a way that we are to to build one another up. This is the whole purpose of the spiritual gifts, right? To edify, to build up, and love has that same end, that same goal in mind, that we are to build one another up. How in love? And then 
lastly, in verse 13, uh, we see the encouragement that, that Paul leaves us with. Let's read 12 and 13. Uh, Paul says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. What a great day that will be when we know fully. Verse 13, But now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, he's wanting to emphasize faith, hope, and love. This was a, a common triad that, that Paul often spoke that the, the early church would be familiar with, faith, hope, and love. And he's saying these three, let's focus and emphasize um, these three, focus on these three. Uh, faith, however, and hope are not something that are eternal. That's why at the end he says that the greatest of these is love because love is eternal. It will never fade away. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 7 that says that we live by faith and not by sight. That is what we're looking forward to. Hebrews 1, 1 defines faith for us. It says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Well, when we are with God, uh, as Revelation 21 says, we will be. There's not going to be any need for faith. We are going to be seeing face to face. We are going to be there. There's not going to be a need for that, that trust, for that belief, that faith. Uh, same with the hope. First Corinthians 4, or First Thessalonians 4.13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who have died, so that you will not grieve as the rest of us do who have no so again, faith and hope are, are temporary. They are fixed in time. Love is eternal. The greatest of these is love. Love is never going to pass away. Uh, we need to embrace that love. We need to define ourselves by that love because it alone is eternal. That is, once again, the, the whole point of what Paul is saying here. Love never fails. Now, if, like me, maybe you had a, a different understanding of what that meant, we need to, to fix our understanding and realize love is eternal, and we are to be known and defined by our love. We should always be evaluating ourselves to make sure that uh, we are adequately representing God who says that he himself is love and that that is going to be something that is going to last with us throughout eternity. And I want to close with, Romans 5, 1 and 2, where Paul talks about these three, faith, hope, and love. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith, this, this elementary principle of faith, into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Let us seek to live a life of love, a life as Christians that reflects the love that's going to last forever. Lord, we thank you again for, for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the eternality of your word, for the eternality of your love. God, oh, the, the depths of both your wisdom and, and knowledge God, how unsearchable your judgments, how unfathomable your ways. God, help us to better understand who you are, to better reflect who you are. God, we thank you for the gifts of the Spirit. We pray that we would use them 
well, to build one another up, to seek unity, but that above all we would seek to love as you have loved, that we would uh, consider one another as more important than ourselves and be willing to, uh, to, to go out of our way, to make ourselves lower, to inconvenience ourselves so that we could serve your church and be unified with your body. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.